Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an election in Newfoundland sees the Liberals get a minority. Are we seeing a shift in Canadian politics? Canada and U.S. steel tariffs removed. And the Prime Minister has announced a new digital charter. Will it matter? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, we've been chatting a a bit throughout the uh, last several weeks about elections across the country, whether they be provincial elections, by-elections and such, uh, and and how uh, slowly other parties are overtaking the Liberals. We saw uh, more recently in uh, 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 Prince Edward Island, almost said British Columbia, wrong wrong end of the country, uh, PEI. Uh, although I guess obviously we did see it uh, out west in uh, Alberta uh, and in PEI with a uh, minority government being formed there. And now in Newfoundland, Newfoundland, Dwight Ball's Liberals have won the election, but they will be forming a minority government. Uh, the PCs are already saying they're going to mount an attack against them. Certainly not the cordial uh, willing to work, cordialness or the willing to work together uh, as we saw in the PEI election. Let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history, University of Toronto. And he is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, does this confirm liberals losing popularity across the country? Can we call this a wave of any sort, Christo, or are we getting ahead of ourselves here? I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, only a few, you know, a few months ago or a couple of years ago, really, uh, much of Canada was governed under liberal regimes. Now, they weren't all, they don't all have the same ideology. Some of them are more progressive or conservative. You know, the B.C. liberals are different from the Ontario liberals, for instance. But the liberal brand was strong. They governed in Quebec, they governed in BC, they governed in Ontario, they governed all four maritime provinces, and yet now we've seen that that's changed. And though, as you know, the BC Liberals still held on to power here, they lost a very big chunk of seats and are now likely going to have to form a minority government. You know, one of the seats last night was very close, it was only a five vote margin. There's a chance that that could flip. But even still, you know, the ability to point to speaker means that unless they can pull a, a floor crosser, there'll likely be a, a minority government there. So that has to be seen as, as, a, as a decline in popularity for the Liberals in the Maritimes. That confirms the, 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 the trend there. As you mentioned, uh, you know, compared to a couple of years ago or, or even several months ago, uh, the tide has certainly changed. Is this a provincial thing? Do you think this is people within their own provinces just making their own decisions, or is this a reflection of how we feel federally? I, mean, I think it depends on the province. I think that... You know, in Ontario, I think it was largely a provincial thing, because as you as we saw is that while Kathleen Wynne, you know, took quite the tumble and the Liberals lost party status, Justin Trudeau's polling numbers never really went down in Ontario at the time. You know, they've been down since with SNC and other issues. But the reality is that if you as Kathleen Wynne lost that election last last summer, Justin Trudeau was still poised for a majority based off a strong Ontario performance. Um, in other provinces, though, you know, there could be effects based on, 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 on federal issues. But I would say that largely this is, you know, uh, mostly provincial issues and a mixture of the fact that often parties find it difficult to perform well at both the provincial and federal levels. That voters sometimes, whether or not it's a planned effect, tend to maybe support the opposite party or a different party provincially. You know, so for instance, maybe they have a federal liberal government, maybe they're a little bit more likely to go on 
and support the provincial conservatives or what have you. And that could be an effect there as well. Uh, this uh, coalition or whatever it will become doesn't seem to be as cohesive as what we saw in uh, Prince Edward Island, where the Greens and the Conservatives were going to try to get together. And, and both were seemed at that at the time uh, that that's what they were going to do. They were both very much interested in, uh, in in working together. And that's what they they felt the people had had voted for. Uh, not so much love, though, in Newfoundland. No, you know, in BC, it's it's very clear. You know, it's not so much going to be a coalition, but it is going to be a PC minority. And likely, what's going to happen there is because it's a minority government on an issue by issue basis, they're going to have to make sure that they can get the support of either the Liberals or the Greens. And as long as they can do that, they can govern. But on certain issues that they can't get support on, they'll either have to um, they'll either have to abandon the issue or modify it or risk losing confidence of the House and then going back to another election. So, you know, normally minority governments last a couple of years, so we might be returning to the polls faster there. In Newfoundland, it's interesting because, you know, it's a very narrow, it's a very big minority government. The, the Liberals are only a couple seats away from a majority. And you have the added narrative of a more combative political scene. And you add the fact in that, you know, there's a, you know, a couple independents. The, the NDP did better than expected in, in, in Newfoundland last night. They won uh, some projecting one seat. They ended up with three. You know, it adds for a, a more volatile situation uh, in Newfoundland. Um, and, and just the, the, the challenges there from the, from, the, from the opposition seem more combative than you saw in PEI. You talked about how um, uh, in Newfoundland, even the, the NDP made some gains, uh, got three seats, didn't even have people in all the ridings, but, but certainly gained. Are we seeing a splintering of the left? I mean, not necessarily. The, the thing in, in, in Newfoundland is the Liberal Party isn't particularly left. They're not left in much of the country, but, you know, the, they're the, 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 green, the, the Liberals have practiced a lot of austerity. The NDP was sort of uh, they're caught, uh, a bit off balance with the uh, the snap election, but as you noted, we're still able to nominate a, you know uh, 14 or so candidates for really focus in on a few ridings where they had a great chance of winning, and they were able to to do so, win two ridings relatively comfortably and one kind of a nail biter, but it was still a, a a key victory. You know, right now some people have argued that you know the, with the Green Party uh, polling better federally, um, that the, the 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 vote the vote split on the anything but conservative side. It's growing, um, but I don't know if that's necessarily a split on the left because there's a real debate about whether the Liberal Party is a left-wing party, and I would argue that it, it, it isn't. And there's also a debate about, well, where are the Greens pulling support from? And, and uh, Frank Graves from Ecos has said that while a lot of it is coming from the Liberals and the NDP, he's seen some conservative to Green movement as sure. well. Yeah. No, it, and it's interesting when you talk to, uh, I, I've talked to Mike Schreiner, Green Party leader here provincially, and when asked him questions in regard to is the party left of this, right of that, he, he sort of threw out, threw out that argument and said, you know, there's issues where we would agree with conservatives, there's issues where we would agree with liberals, NDP, etc. Um, is this a new type of politics we're seeing as opposed to identifying everybody with the left or the right or the center or this or that or the other? No, I don't, I don't think so, frankly. I think the Green Party right now is, is starting to face more and more questions that they never have before because now yeah. they've found, they've been finding, you know, Elizabeth May, of course, won back in 2011. But, you know, at the time she was the only one, there was no provincial Green MPs anywhere in the country or MPPs or MLAs or whatever you want to call them. But now there's, there's a lot. There's two federal MPs. There's one in Ontario, there's three in New Brunswick, there's three in BC, there's 
you know, I, I forget the exact amount, but there's the official opposition in PEI. And so now they're starting to get a lot of questions. Well, what does the Green Party believe? And I don't think they're necessarily uh, so much that, like, oh, we're beyond ideology. I think, frankly, it's that they feel strategically by saying nothing, by trying to obscure what they are. Maybe they feel right. that they can pull in votes. Because I think what the Green Party realizes right now is that people aren't necessarily voting them voting for them for any overarching reason. If it had to pick, maybe it's the environment. But I think what they realize is right now they're an anything but everybody else vote. Mm. And so if you say nothing, you preserve your ability to be a protest vote. But as soon as they say, oh, yeah, we're left wing, well, right. a lot of conservatives who are maybe unhappy with Andrew Scheer and yet don't like Maxime Bernier but are okay with the Green Party, maybe they leave. Or if they say, well, we actually we're right of center, then a lot of NDP types, maybe some liberals, would leave the Greens as well by saying nothing or saying, you know, as the Green Party would say, we're not left but right, not left or right but forward. Right. You, you sort of keep that, that protest narrative up. Yeah, it gives them a different, uh, a different moniker from the rest. Um, uh, how, in explaining the, the, the rise of Green, and, and by that maybe that's overstating things a little, it's, they're, they're certainly gaining more popularity. It, it's not like they're, um, you know, it's not like the NDP's orange wave at any point, uh, or at this point rather. Um, so do you think that the reason for this rise is just um, uh, the fact that people are so uh, involved with environmental issues, or has this become another or a new protest vote? I mean, I think it's a mixture. I think there are some people who are, who, who are concerned about environmental issues, uh, left, right, and center, and, and don't feel the other parties have sufficient voice on the issue, whether that's fair or not. I'm not, I'm not here to debate you know, environmental right. platforms. But, and so they say, well, there's the Green Party, and so they're the party of green issues, so I want to vote for them. And I think if that's the case, but there's also the case that it is you know, a party that doesn't have any baggage. Like it has, it doesn't right. have this historical baggage either federally or in any province, and so it's easier to back them. Whereas, you know, with any of the other parties, you know, there's 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 historical baggage, or there's fights between provincial and federal sections, or, or what have you. And I think they're in a position right there. But it's very early to say because you know parties can peak early, you know, people uh, groups can peak early. Uh, the Green Party will face increased scrutiny if their polling continues to, to hold where it is or if it improves. And people might start to question, you know, the position of the party. And again, we have to see more because, again, the other three major parties, I mean, the NDP, Liberals and Greens, or the NDP, Liberals and Conservatives have all been around for a very long time. And all of them have governed, you know, uh, multiple provinces, multiple times. Mm -hmm. You know, the NDP is the smaller of the three, but the NDP has still formed government in over half of Canada's provinces. The Green Party has only formed official opposition in the smallest province. So it's a little early of, of, to start talking about them as, you know, a, a, a national force. Uh, in other words, the fresh new kid on the block that hasn't been tested. So obviously to everybody, they look like the uh, appealing option. Um, liberals certainly have made climate change a pillar of, of their election campaign. H how do they outgreen the Greens? Well, I don't know if they, 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 they can or necessarily want to. It's a tricky position because the Liberals have talked a lot about the environment because they know it's something that people perceive the Conservatives as being weak on, like the broad ABC electorate. But it's tricky because, you know, they, they won't meet Stephen Harper's emissions targets. Uh, and they've done a lot of the things that Conservative regimes would do, like work really, really, really hard to build a pipeline. 
you know, they've put the federal money where their mouth is and they've bought a pipeline to try to get it built. And so it's difficult for the liberals to be uh, to, 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 to be clear on this issue. And even things like, you know, voting down the NDP's climate emergency resolution. The liberals are in a tricky spot. But even the Greens here are in a tricky position. A lot of Greens capitalized on you know, the NDP's position on liquid natural grass in, in, in British Columbia. But the reality is, is that Green Party in B.C. holds the balance of power, and they haven't used it to fight the NDP on environmental issues. They've only used it to fight the NDP on working class issues. The Green Party has fought the NDP to make it easier to unionize, and the Green Party has fought to make it hard, uh, uh, the minimum wage rise slower there. They, you know, they're getting a $15 minimum wage, but over a slower period because of the Greens. So the reality is, is that maybe even the Green Party isn't as green as we think, and maybe they're more of a traditional kind of right-of-center fiscal conservative party, because when they've had the, the one place they've had power, they haven't used it to put forward a green agenda. Hmm, good point. Um, uh, how do conservatives combat the prime minister's climate change stance? How do they, because obviously they're going to be tried to paint, uh, be painted as, you know, fossil fuel burning pigs. How do they, how do they, how, how do they move forward on this issue and, and make it appear that they're doing something? You know, it might be impossible now, but what I would have said five years ago is they should be supporting a carbon tax. That, that should have been, and, you know, Preston Manning would agree with me on that, saying the carbon tax was the conservative window into environmentalism. You make it revenue neutral or as revenue neutral as you can. You, you, you don't pick winners or losers sectorally. You, you put it, you know, you don't, as you noted, the, the, there's concerns that it's not being applied industry by industry or location by location fairly. You do that and you say that's our environmental policy. We're going to put a price on pollution and or we're going to put a price on carbon emissions and the market will take care of it and we'll reevaluate the carbon price as green technologies improve and as, you know, carbon becomes you know, carbon rates change and what have you. That was the conservative approach. Now, I don't know what they can do. I mean, they could come out with their version of a carbon tax, but I don't know how different it'll be from Justin Trudeau. And given how oppositional people like Doug Ford have been to the idea of either cap and trade or a carbon tax, it could be difficult for Scheer to do so. He risks, therefore, losing people to Maxim Bernier's party. Uh, you know, as a, a further right alternative, mm-hmm. uh, if he does that. And I you know conservatives usually are more disciplined on the vote splitting issue. But, you know, the carbon tax has been attacked for such a long time. And I don't know where the conservatives can go. Like, I'm not sure. I mean, I, Scheer has said he has a plan, but I'm very interested to see what it is, because the carbon tax was the conservative plan. Uh, how concerned is the prime minister over the election results uh, that we saw last night in Newfoundland? I mean... He has to be he has to be at least somewhat concerned. I mean, the trickiness with with provinces like Newfoundland and, and PEI and the maritime provinces is that they have way more ridings uh, provincially than they do federally. It's not like Ontario, where, you know, our, we have the exact same amount of ridings, basically, he, at least in the in the south. You know, the Hamilton Center is the same federally as it is provincially in the maritimes. They, you know, they, they have 40 ridings in Newfoundland, but they have far less than that federally. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing the Liberals, what they're looking at is, you know, if we add these vote totals in, what does this look like on a federal map? I think the Liberals in general with the Maritimes know that they're going to be losing some seats. They won all 32 last time, including some fairly conservative, you know, uh, blue parts of New Brunswick, for instance, that rarely go Liberal. So the Liberals are, I think, concerned about the fact that they might lose more than they thought in the Maritimes. And therefore, the pressure is increasingly on for them to pr- to improve their totals in Quebec 
But that might be difficult because while the NDP is a bit slumping there, there's a chance they could come back, and the Bloc Québécois has renewed strength. So the Liberals are probably worried that you know a lot of their 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 their, their buffer over the Conservatives are, is being lost in places like the Maritime. Uh, where is the what is the Prime Minister's biggest challenge at this point, uh, this far out of the election? Well, it's tricky. It was what his greatest strength was a few months ago, which was his own personal brand. I mean, if you remember back in 2015, I mean, the Liberals had a platform. I don't want to say they didn't, but it wasn't particularly policy heavy. It was that Canadians wanted Harper gone. And, you know, at the end of the day, they liked Justin Trudeau. They liked that he was a young, energetic guy. They liked the, I think, the romanticism of a former prime minister's son. They liked that he was able to master social media. And even while he had some gaffes, you know, throughout the term, that trip to India as a, as a particular example, he remained very popular until just a few months ago. Yeah. And now if you've looked at some of the recent polling, you know, May is, is, is Elizabeth May is quite popular. Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh have, are in the negatives, but not by very much. And then Justin Trudeau has taken a big tumble. So the question is going to be, how do the Liberals approach this election? Is it going to be about Team Trudeau, or are they going to have to run on the broader Liberal brand or specific successes like the economy if they can make the case that the economy is strong? Because Justin Trudeau's own personal brand isn't what it used to be, right. and that's going to be a fundamentally different approach to how they run this election. That was my thought. I mean, do they, do they run on the Sunny Ways Prime Minister brand, or do they focus on the negativities of the other parties, the negativities of the Conservatives? I mean, that's going to be an interesting question. You think that, again, by running a personal election, like this is the, the whole thing in Ontario, and it didn't work. It was very much they did not run on Kathleen Wynne. You know what I mean? They did not do that. Yeah. Um, the reality was is that liberals that wanted to succeed often had to run extremely local campaigns that were not about the party brand, but were about, were about their roles as constituency, you know, community representatives and community champions. And some of them succeeded based on that. But federally, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think the Liberals uh, can't run on this Team Trudeau narrative as they thought they could a year ago. But they, you know, the, the argument could be made that you know, the economy hasn't – there's no recession as of yet at least. And it could run on some of the policies they've done that have put money in people's pockets. You could see them probably talk a lot about the child care benefit or talk about the fact that the carbon tax, for most people at least, you know, they end up getting a rebate. That'll probably be what they talk about, and it'll be less about Justin Trudeau's personal brand because, again, it's not what it used to be. At least, at least right now, who knows what could happen? Like, there's still there's still half a year to the election. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in History, University of Toronto. Always fun, Christo. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada and the United States close to reaching a deal that would remove steel and aluminum tariffs. Could it be true? That's reports we're hearing today. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, do we put any weight in these rumors that are floating around that apparently we're close to a deal today? Well, uh, I uh, went and did some research on this, and apparently Noonshin, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly, the Secretary of the Treasury, which is what we call the Finance Minister in Canada, testified yesterday afternoon uh, before one of the uh, House committees uh, testified that, in fact, um, they, they are close to a deal. Now, he didn't say they have a deal. He said they are 
close to a deal. And, and so then the question is, well, what does that mean? I mean, they're giving signals. They, the U.S. administration, are sending out signals that they are close to resolving these so-called Section 232 tariffs. It's, but there's going to be give and take on both sides, and the question is whether they will be able to close the deal, because even though they're close to a deal, we don't know what each side has to give up to get the deal. Uh, that, that being said, uh, it, it appears it appears that um, uh, there has been progress made. Why now? What, why is this coming to surface now? Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, I think that the the reason is, and this came out yesterday, um, <clears throat> uh, that uh, that they understand now that there is no way that they can have uh, the uh, the new NAFTA, as I like to call it approved by the Congress until these tariffs are resolved. That was so, my next question. So this is reliant on NAFTA getting passed. It, it is indeed. I think it's um, it, 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 that the Trump administration were quite happy with tariffs. We know that. Uh, Donald Trump has <laughs> sometimes called himself the tariff man. Uh, but he's realized that it's causing blowback to Trump's agenda. And his agenda is he wants that uh, deal ratified, the new NAFTA, um, the USMC, whatever it's called, uh, they want it ratified um, so he can brag about it on the campaign trail as he campaigns over the next 12 or so months or more for re-election in fall of 2020. This is, remember, he campaigned in 2016 saying that NAFTA was the worst deal ever, which I, I, don't, I yeah. certainly didn't believe it, but the point is that's what he believed and he campaigned on. And so he wants to be able to go back in 2020 and say, Look, people, I told you it was a really bad deal. I told you I was going to do something about it, and I did. I closed a new deal that's, quote, much better than the old deal. That's what he wants to do. And, and the, the sticking point right now are these tariffs that have uh, caused uh, people in the Congress to say, we're not going to ratify the new NAFTA until you get rid of those tariffs. Sticking point uh, being tariffs that he's put on everything. Uh, this is all his own, uh, of his own free will. Uh, NAFTA is pretty much dead with these tariffs in place. I mean, he must know that, correct? I, I believe so. I, I'm very much, I think he's starting to realize. You know, I, I'm, let me just jump in, uh, cut in on myself on this uh, point, Scott. I, I, I'm not a fan of tariffs. I don't think anyone who supports trade agreements generally is. But there is, there can be a case in certain uh, limited circumstances for tariffs. Um, and that's where one of the parties is system, systemically, systematically cheating. That does not apply to Canada, and that does not apply to Mexico. So there was no, ju- no justification whatsoever to, uh, to um, uh, impose these tariffs on Canada or Mexico because they're in a very different position from China. It's widely agreed that China does cheat and cheat systematically in a whole range of areas. And this has been found to be the case by um, a trade dispute uh, tribunals in Washington and in Europe. But that is not the case with Canada or Mexico. I think he really, you know, one, one can argue he was, had a, a case in imply, applying them to China. But I don't think he had any case whatsoever in applying them to Canada or Mexico. And fortunately, we had, I guess, some allies in the Congress that agreed with us and said, we're not going to go forward and have a vote 
until these tariff problems are cleaned up. Well, it almost seems contradictory. I mean, what's the sense of having a free trade agreement if you've got tariffs in place? The whole idea behind the trade agreement is to remove those sorts of uh, barriers. That being said, any reason to believe he's going to remove all of these? Because he said he loves them. So is yes. he, he going to keep his thumb on that tariff button until the very last second, until he gets yeah. everything he thinks he can get out of it? That is the uh, what I want to see, if there really is a deal. Is it a complete and comprehensive deal that lifts all of those uh, those uh, tariffs that he imposed on Canada and uh, and Mexico, or is it just a select number, or is it partial relief? I mean, it, it's not a sort of like a light switch. The light switch is on, or the light switch is off. The tariffs are on, the tariffs are off. There's a whole range of possibilities that that uh, he can do to, uh, uh, as you say, uh, continue to keep his thumb on the tariffs. And I guess it's a sense, I think it's a sense on his part, of how much can he get away with. Because he obviously likes tariffs. Uh, and so he's well, it gives him power. It's leverage, right? Is sure, that the sure. reason? Is that the reason? I'm guessing that he likes them is because it does give him leverage. It gives. Well, it, I think it also. Uh, I think even more importantly is it gives him talking points and it keeps him in the news on this file, so that every week that comes up and if the opposition attacks him on, on on trade generally with other countries, he can say, "What are you talking about? I'm out there fighting the good fight. I'm standing up to Canada. I'm standing up to Mexico. I'm standing up to the." Chinese, and so it keeps them in the news, and it's a reinforcing story. It's a reinforcing narrative week after week. And whereas once you take the tariffs off, um, well, <laughs> some some uh, stakeholders in the states can say, well, what are you doing for us now? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, I took the tariffs off, and they're going to say, well, so what? Whereas with the tariffs on, he can he gets new um, leverage, if you yeah, will. Yeah. Uh, every week, every time the media talk about the tariffs. It reinforces yeah. that Donald Trump is a man of action, and he's out there fighting for the American consumer. He's so out there like, ticking someone off. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, and it's a news story that it, it, it's free news for yeah. Donald Trump. It, yeah. it, you, even if the news, the journalists are attacking the terrorists, he can say, "See, the, the media are talking about it all the time. It must be hurting because everybody's upset about it. It shows you I'm a man of action, and I'm going after those cheaters in these other countries." And remember, in the Rust Belt states, they think we're all cheaters, not just the Chinese, uh, the Canadians too. As you mentioned earlier, Ian, uh, you know, tariffs on China are one thing where there's a huge trade imbalance. Tariffs uh, in regard to the NAFTA, the new NAFTA deal, is is a totally different thing. Does he does he pretend that it's all the same, or it, like if it, if he pulls the tariffs off Canada and the United States, does that in, or off uh, aluminum and steel, does that translate into his? how he interprets uh, tariffs with China. I, I'm hoping that he sees it very differently. I'm hoping the people around him have convinced him of that. Because, again, we're, uh, it's not that I'm just saying this because I'm a Canadian. I mean, we don't do the things that the Chinese do. I mean, the Chinese have been cheating on intellectual property. Canada does not do that. We have a rigorous intellectual property regime. Uh, they've been cheating on massive subsidies for large, incredibly large numbers of state-owned enterprises. We, Canada, do not have thousands upon thousands of state-owned enterprises. We have a few, but nothing like China. One-third of all the corporations in China are, in fact, government corporations. Uh, you know, they were cheating on suppressing the currency. Well, we don't do that and have not done that. So, you know, you go through all the, the litany of things that China has done, and, I mean, we're just not, we don't play those games. So we don't do that. And, and I'm hoping he's coming to that, 
to to learn to distinguish between friends and enemies, I guess is the best way of putting hmm, it. That's an interesting point. Uh, so any chance that we're going to hear information that this will be resolved today? They were saying Friday. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I'm I've been very impressed with Mr. I hope I'm pronouncing his name again. Munchen, the Treasury Secretary. He's very low key. He's uh, he's a self-made multi-billionaire, by the way. Um, and he has, I believe, an MBA, um, and he's from that you know Harvard, Yale, Princeton crowd, and uh, he's very well known in the financial community, and uh, he has a lot of uh, r- credibility and gravitas. He's not a bomb thrower for uh, t- uh, for Trump, and so I'm more uh, more willing to find these rumors credible simply because they're coming out of the mouth of Mr. Munchen, and uh, um, so I think it's possible. It's quite possible. I mean, this is the direct quote. I found it while I was talking to you. It was the Senate subcommittee he spoke to yesterday. He said, we are close to an understanding with Mexico and Canada on the tariffs, which have been in place for nearly one year. It is a priority of ours, end quote, the Secretary of the Treasury. So it sounds like they're going down that road, and they're they're pretty close to signing. All right, can't let you go, Ian, without asking you your thoughts uh, as a biz prof uh, when it comes to the negotiations going on between Air Canada and Air Transat. I think it's going to go through um, for one for a couple of reasons. First off, I I am uh, I, I don't invest or consult to any of these airlines. I don't have any dog in the hunt. I don't have a conflict of interest. I have been very impressed with Ravanescu, who is the CEO of Air Canada. I teach Air Canada case study in my classes. I think he's one of the most astute airline CEOs in the world today, uh, and I say this without bias, I have flown on many airlines around the world, I fly, continue to fly in Air Canada, and in the last five years there has been a huge increase in, I believe, the quality of service of Air Canada, and it's reflected in awards they are winning internationally. I think that you're, we're seeing the ongoing restructuring of the airline industry to become a more attractive industry. Remember, attractive means to the investor, which means that you and I pay more money because more attractive means they're making more money. They're making more money because they've learned to buy up competitors. Hello, Transat. And they've done things like monetized everything in the cabin from the choice of your seat to the headphones to the pillows to everything else. We know that story. And so the airline industry has become much more attractive, and Air Canada is a formidable competitor in the airline industry in the world today, not just in Canada. And I think that this is part of the... Ravanescu's grand strategic vision for the uh, continued growth and uh, increasing dominance of Air Canada, and so I think it will go forward. What does this mean for com- uh, for customers? Many are concerned the loss of another competitor. I am too. Um, I, I don't think prices are going to go down. Let's put that right out there. I think he's smart enough, uh, he is smart enough, to know that you can't uh, allow yourself to think you've got a quasi-monopoly and start to putting up start putting up the prices willy-nilly because he understands the moment you do that, someone will come in that wasn't there before. New competitors are formed with regularity in the airline industry. But, I, again, I, 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 I've never met the man, by the way. I've studied what they've been doing at the turnaround of Air Canada, and it has been remarkable, I assure you, uh, as a user of Air Canada. I can remember only seven, eight, nine years ago when flying on Air Canada was a horror and a nightmare, and that is mm. no longer the case. And, and if there's anybody that can pull this off, pull it off successfully, and remain competitive and attractive to consumers, I believe it's uh, Mr. Ravanescu, 
the CEO of Air Canada. So I think that the international competition is going to temper them. Remember, they don't compete inside Canada, really, but they compete every time they fly abroad because foreign airlines can fly into Canada and back out. So Lufthansa can fly from Frankfurt to Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and fly back. So they do face competition. They just don't face it domestically. In other words, they've only got one domestic, really one domestic competitor, and that's WestJet. Let's call it a half competitor for Porter because they're not in all the airports. And so they don't face as much competition domestically, but they're disciplined by the international competition, which is, which is very strong. Uh, what about the brand? Will they absorb uh, Air Transat, or will they keep that as a separate brand that's more of a holiday destination? They'll probably keep it short-term as part of their brand, but if you look at Air Canada, they're branding everything Air Canada, you know, Air Canada Rouge and so forth. Air Canada's brand, the word Air Canada, is a incredibly strong brand, yeah. and I'm not here to sell Air Canada, but, you know, you're a, a far away around the world, and then you see those Air Canada planes with the great big red maple leaf roll into that airport while you're sitting in the, uh, in the airport somewhere looking out the windows. And it is, it's an amazing feeling, I assure you. Ian Lee, Ian Lee has been with us, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University, uh, Canada and the U.S. Rumor has it close to a deal on uh, aluminum and steel tariffs. What that includes, we still have to uh, wait and see. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a group of leaders meeting in regard to talk about internet uh, security and and how we manage this moving forward, uh, specifically with what happened in in Christchurch and 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 the shooting there that was uh, streamed live while the incident happened. According to the Prime Minister, the new digital charter will dictate how country how countries tackle hate speech and misinformation online, and that there will be meaningful financial consequences for those that don't comply. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, tech analyst, and he is on the line with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. Carmi, we've heard so much about this. Is, is, is there anything different now? Is there anything new here? Is there anything more we can do? Oh, I wish the answer was a great big yes, but no. Um, you know, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that the Prime Minister is even saying uh, we are going to move ahead with a digital charter. So I don't want to rain on his or anyone else's parade. Uh, I don't want to squelch the optimism. It, it's a good thing that the government recognizes this is an online problem and we need a better framework to rein it in because the, the social media giants, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Google, they're, we can't rely on them. We can't count on them. They haven't stepped up to the plate. They need to have rules around them. We need to hold them accountable. So that in and of itself is a really good thing, and I think that should be encouraged, even applauded. But if we seem to, if we think, if we assume that the government's going to put a digital charter in place, and then that's going to solve all of our online problems, that digital hate speech, misinformation, uh, interference in the electoral process, online violence and extremism, if we think that all of that is going to poof, go away in a heartbeat, we are deluding ourselves. The government can no longer solve it. Then a wizard can come down and wave his or her magic wand. Uh, so it's a really good start. It's laudable. It's a positive, but it's just the beginning, and it is far. There, there are no details, no timelines, no budget. Uh, so let's not get our hopes up too, too much. Uh, we need more details, and I think we should hold the government's feet to the fire on that front. Is Facebook too big to control? Uh, to a certain extent, it is. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at things like Cambridge Analytica and scandal after scandal insofar as privacy, data stewardship, confidentiality, advertising, 
all of these things where we know that Facebook has really pushed the boundaries of what is considered acceptable behavior by a social media giant, by a tech company, uh, then yeah, you know, they, they certainly need to be reined in. I think it's fair to say that much of the behaviors that we've been seeing uh, have been detrimental to you and to me and to all of our listeners, anyone who uses Facebook. I don't think, uh, I, I think we're in a more dangerous position now because of the way Facebook behaves than we would have been if Facebook had been a better corporate citizen. So, uh, you know, if Facebook isn't going to police itself, and it's pretty clear they won't, uh, then it's it's incumbent upon governments, including Canada's, which we have a history of of, uh, of doing this with Facebook, and this goes back years, but it's incumbent upon governments like Canada's to do the job, to basically say, okay, Facebook, and by extension, Google and Twitter and the others, you want to do business in our country? Here are the rules. And if you don't adhere to them, it's going to cost you. Uh, do other countries need to get on the same page? I mean, can t- countries do this individual, or does this have to be done uh, as a group? It really needs to be a global effort, uh, and and that's kind of the problem, is that the Internet is a global resource, but the laws that would rein in the excesses of, of behavior that we see from companies like Facebook are national in nature, and they stop at the border. And Facebook knows this. So does Google. So does Uber. So does Twitter, and they take advantage of it, and they know full well that uh, that they can pretty much do what they want because there are no meaningful consequences to those behaviors. Why did Cambridge Analytica happen? Well, because Facebook knew that it could play fast and loose with the rules and it wouldn't be called to account because basically law enforcement stands at the border and says, my power only reaches here, it doesn't go beyond. But we're starting to see that change a little bit. The European Union, Union last year introduced something called GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, some very tough new rules on privacy and data stewardship that hold companies accountable. And they're going to be rolling out multi-billion dollar fines over the next few months uh, to, to reinforce that they mean business. And what often happens is Europe sets the tone. So they come up with a new regulation that ostensibly uh, applies only there, but then other countries follow suit. Uh, and so that's really why we're seeing that action from Canada now is that there's been this push in some uh, you know, notable uh, jurisdictions, including Europe, to tighten down on online privacy and online stewardship and behaviors. And so now Canada is saying, we have a history of working with Facebook to force them to be accountable. We're going to jump on the bandwagon and hopefully this will start some good global momentum. How is Facebook reacting to this or do they? Well, Facebook right now, they, they haven't, uh, specifically to Trudeau's announcement, they haven't said much. Um, and I wouldn't expect them to. Um, obviously, the government has reached out to them. Uh, the Canadian government, as well as our Office of the Privacy Commissioner, um, have worked frequently with Facebook in recent years uh, to improve the way they manage privacy. And often what happens in Canada then becomes global standard. So I would expect they're working quietly behind the scenes. Facebook has said they're uh, working feverishly on new technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, to identify questionable content. Uh, if, for example, if a terrorist posts something or if someone like we saw in Christchurch where he was live streaming the event as it was happening. Yeah. Can you that stop that, Carmi? Is that possible? Well, using current technologies and processes, no. In fact, they had to, the police had to call Facebook, and it took about 19 minutes until they were even made aware of it before they could take it down. So right now, the short answer is no, but long term, there's nothing that says that they can't implement or introduce better technologies that catch this stuff, if not in real time, then at least close enough that the window is relatively small. 
So Facebook's got to invest. The industry has to invest. Uh, and they also need to continue to hire more people who serve as moderators and train them better. Uh, and it will get better. But will we ever completely eliminate it or will criminals always find a way around it? Uh, I think there's there's uh, more truth to the latter than the former. Last question, Carmi. If you were Mark Zuckerberg, would you sell this now? Would you just get out? Is it time to get out? Um, I mean, if I were him, I'd, I'd uh, well, actually, no. Uh, I mean, if I were him, I'd be afraid of what's about to come. I think the world's about to become a lot colder for him. Yeah. Uh, a lot of governments have said, you know, we're going to start finding you and not just chump change, but multiple billions of dollars enough that it's going to hurt your ability to survive and to continue in business as is. And so, but the thing is, this is, and this is the funny thing, Facebook has never been under siege more than it is now. Yet quarter after quarter, its revenue numbers, its profit uh, continues to go up. The number of people that use it every day, every month continues to go up globally. This company is on a roll. Uh, privacy scandals notwithstanding, data scandals notwithstanding, it doesn't seem to be stopping them because, let's face it, we all still use it, even though we know the company is a bad boy. So will Zuckerberg get out? No, he still has a lot more money to make. But, you know, maybe not me, you know, maybe for the next couple of years, that rocket ride is going to continue. But five years down the line, when new laws and digital charters are in place that give governments real teeth to go after them, I think he might be singing a very different tune then. Mm. Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst, talking about the Prime Minister's new digital charter that he announced. Carmi, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. I will. You too, Scott. Enjoy. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.